I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about this because you're a TV executive, right? Talk to me about redemption. What point do uh, do people who have made mistakes get to come back? So somebody like Louis C.K., right? At what point w- do you think uh, somebody like a, an HBO or Comedy Central or somebody will say, okay, it's been enough time. We can we can bring him back and put him back on the air. Because it's not I, – I, I pick on him because he's an outstanding comic who's made mistakes and – I'm just wondering, is there a second chance for him? And what is the point where a TV executive will take a chance? Well, it's a heck of a good question. Hello, friends. Welcome to another edition of the Inside BS Show. My name is Dave Lorenzo. And if you've ever wondered how something gets on TV... Well, you've you've got you you are going to find out today. You've come to the right place. We've got the right guy for you. My guest today is Art Bell, and he's a writer and a former media executive known for creating, building and managing successful cable television channels. His memoir, published by Ulysses Press, Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor, was recently honored as a finalist in the 2020 Best Book Awards for a memoir. You see, while working at HBO, Art pitched the idea of a 24-hour comedy network, and he helped develop and launch HBO's The Comedy Channel, which became Comedy Central. He went on to hold senior executive positions in both programming and marketing. After leaving Comedy Central, Art became president of Court TV, where he was a guiding force behind one of the most successful brand evolutions in cable television. In addition to writing, he plays piano and drums. And we are very fortunate to welcome Mr. Art Bell to the Inside BS Show. Art, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dave. Great to be here. All right. So you're building a comedy channel and you lost your sense of humor. Tell us about <laughs> that. What, what is that all about? Well, you know, I wanted to make that the subtitle of the book for the simple reason that I think a lot of people watching Comedy Central today figure, well, it's 30 years old. It must have been launched out of a canon, fully formed, successful, uh, a big hit television network. No. The first year was a nightmare. It was, it was very, very difficult. And it, I went to work every day in the first six months thinking I was going to get a phone call and they were going to say, we're shutting the network down. It's just not doing well enough. And that was my life. And along the way, about six months in, the chairman of HBO called me in and he was the boss. And he said, Art, you know, it took a comedy channel to get me to lose my sense of humor. And I thought, oh my gosh, I lost my sense of humor too. And that was how tough things were. Of course, we didn't lose our sense of humor for long. Now, what you're, what you're talking about is, I'm sure you're talking about the business aspects of it. That's what, that's what was beating the hell out of you. It wasn't, it wasn't the shows themselves. The shows themselves, I think right from the beginning, a lot of them were really, really good. What were some of the initial ideas that you that you brought to HBO and you said, look, these are great shows. We could put a bunch of these together. What were some of the initial ideas? Well, I, I, it wasn't just about the shows. What I pitched, when I pitched the idea was we could be the center of the universe in comedy. 
We could be the place that all the comedians want to hang out. We could be a place where innovative comedy would find us. And in fact, even before we launched, we did get some innovative comedy. In the mail, we got a tape. And with the tape, there was a note that said, hey, heard you guys are starting a comedy channel. Is this something that would interest you? And it was Mystery Science Theater 3000. These guys had been producing it as kind of like a hobby in Minneapolis. And I thought, man, that's great. You know, and we put that on the air, and thankfully we did, because that was almost an instant cult hit for us. So is th this is, correct me if I'm wrong, this is the era of the HBO's half-hour comedy hour. Is this when they were, is this when they were doing that? Well, that's and right. That was, and so, and that was, if, if I if I remember right, I was in college at the time, and that was like the comedy show to watch. Like we would, you know, we would religiously watch it. And that was where you saw all the new upcoming talent. And it, did HBO think to themselves, all right, so we're going to build on this? Or did they think to themselves, we already got comedy. This is we're doing fine with this. What was, the, go, what was the thought process? I'll go with B on that. We're doing fine with comedy. We don't have to do anything else. I mean, think about it. Not only were they doing that show they, w that highlighted young comedians, young comedian specials, but they were also doing those one-hour, highly produced comedy specials with Whoopi and Billy Crystal and, and uh, Robin Williams. And think about it. In those days, if you wanted to see Robin Williams' show uncut, if you wanted to see his act, you either had to see him in a club or you could see it on HBO where they weren't censoring anything. Everything else, they were putting comedians on the air and cutting the things to pieces. So HBO really made a name for themselves doing that. And by the way, Michael Fuchs, I mentioned him before, the chairman of HBO, was instrumental in getting those one-hour comedies on the air. So he was a big comedy lover. Was there, was there initial ideas toward original programming or was it the kind of thing where you said um okay here's what we're going to do we're going to take reruns of sitcoms and put them on how did you i mean you got 24 hours to fill right so what, what was the thought process about the programming well here's the thing when i pitched the channel originally to the head of programming at uh at hbo and it took a lot of guts for me to go in there because I was just like a kid at the network. First thing she said was, it's the worst idea I ever heard. We don't need a 24-hour comedy network. Nobody wants to watch that much comedy. And, you know, you're not going to get any decent comedians to be on it. You think Whoopi is going to be on it? You think Billy's going to be on it? No, they're not going to be on it. And she said, and finally, it's expensive. It's too, comedy is very expensive, very writer intensive. And if you have to start licensing movies and television shows, you're out of business before you start. So yeah. my idea was, and this is what I, this is what I honed, was that we were going to start kind of like MTV started with music videos. We were going to do short form programming primarily, uh, where we would take clips from comedy movies, comedy television shows, stand-up clips from our, you know, from uh, comedy specials or anywhere else we could find stand-up and combine that with some, obviously, some long-form shows like Mystery Science Theater, some comedy movies. But the preponderance of it, we were going to get as promotional clips that the studios were happy to have us run because they wanted promotion for their movies. And that was one of the big selling points because people said, oh, now I see how we can start this thing inexpensively and then we can grow it from there. And when did you know it was going to work? Well, I mentioned <laughs> I mentioned when 
Mystery Science Theater 3000 came in the mail. I mean, I, I just looked at that show and I said, you know, this is a show that would not get on HBO or NBC or CBS or anywhere. This is a show that would not have a home that is so brilliant in its concept and is going to find such a great audience that... Of course, this channel has to be successful. That was before we even launched. The other thing that was kind of a tip-off that we would be successful is comedians almost immediately gravitated to us. You know, before Comedy Central, the only place comedians could hang out was at clubs. But we built a studio, and suddenly comedians are coming to find us. They're coming to hang out, have a cup of coffee, pitch some shows. And it turns out that comedians were flattered that we threw them a channel. You know what I mean? Because nobody had given them that kind of respect. I hate to go Rodney Dangerfield on you, but nobody had done that the way they had for sports, ESPN, the way they had for MTV, for musicians on MTV. Nobody was doing that kind of thing for comedians. We did it. They were very grateful. And I said, how can we fail? Yeah. All right. So your first year was not all cookies and cream you had you had a you had a rough start your first year tell folks about uh about what that what that startup process was like because maybe there's somebody listening that's going through a startup process in their own business right now and they can take inspiration from how you got through the the rough first year okay let me give you a little background first michael fuchs was at that time considered the most powerful man in hollywood he was the chairman of hbo very powerful and also he had a big big ego so when we decided to do the channel, he went out blazing, saying this is going to be the best channel ever. It's going to be the funniest comedy network. Yeah, I, I, I see your reaction. That was pretty much my reaction. He had a press breakfast in Los Angeles, and I remember standing next to Billy Crystal and him turning to me saying, who are you now? <laughs> and Michael got up there, and he had a lot of comedians around, had the press was there, and he said, it's going to be great. Guess what? Day one, we launched. Wasn't great. Now, anybody else launching it, say I had done it myself, right? They'd say, all right, well, the guy just launched it. You know, let's give him a few weeks, right? Uh-uh. Michael had put himself out there, and there was a lot of schadenfreude, you know, watching Michael kind of screw this up. And people said, hey, HBO launched a comedy channel, and it's not funny, or it's terrible. I think one place called us the Gong Show. I think that was a Variety article. It was really embarrassing. And uh, Michael was embarrassed. Michael was really embarrassed. But, you know, lesson number one, you can kind of sneak on the stage carefully uh, and show your stuff. Or you can make an announcement before you get on stage saying, fasten your seatbelts, folks. You've never seen anything like this. Then you got to live up to that on, you know, the minute you get there. So that was that was thing number one. As soon as we started, I realized we had to make changes. Now, the good things, thing about any business like that, certainly any television show, any television channel, is it's not like a movie where you launch it on a Wednesday or a Friday, and then if it didn't make a billion dollars at the box office on Tuesday, you're out of business. We could change it every day. We could make adjustments, and that's what I did. I, I, I went to work every day saying, okay, what's working? Let's do more of that. What's not working? Let's do less of that. And that was really the way I approached the whole thing. And believe me, there was, such in, there was so much incoming, uh, incoming criticism, you know. Everybody was telling me it was a disaster. Everybody was saying, it's not funny. Everybody was saying, do this, do that, do the other thing. 
And I had to think my way through that. We all did. You know, by that point, it wasn't just me. We had, a, <clears throat> excuse me, we had a team working on this channel. But early on, we figured out one thing. We ran a marathon of stand-up comedy. Remember, we were showing lots of different kinds of comedy. Stand-up comedy really worked. So, turn up the dial on stand-up comedy. Started to build our audience a little faster. Second thing, we would go to meetings with advertisers and affiliates, and <clears throat> the advertisers would say, you know what, I watched the, we watched some of this channel. It doesn't, doesn't seem very funny. I don't even get it. But you know something? My 16-year-old kid thinks it's the greatest thing on earth. He's watching it all the time. And we realized that our audience was younger, a little more male, and they were looking for what we were giving them, which was edgy comedy. We were giving them edgy, innovative comedy. And that wasn't likely to appeal to an older demographic, some of the people who were buying advertising or, or launching us. So we, you know, we learned a lot of valuable lessons in those first six months. And the audience did start to build. So entrepreneurship is, is about taking risks and being resilient. And both of those things you just did. And you're working inside a company. So you're you're an entrepreneur essentially, right? That's right. Talk That's about right. talk about how the uh, the how do you take inspiration to keep going? What what keeps you coming back day in and day out when you know you launch and and all of a sudden people are coming to you? The worst thing anybody can say to anyone in comedy is it's it's not funny, right? So somebody sitting in front of their TV, they look over at you. Art, not so much, not so funny. How do you keep coming back then? How do you keep coming back? Do you just celebrate the little victories? What gets you through it? Well, yes, you celebrate the little victories, but you also, you know, there's, there's kind of a negative motivation factor here. And that is, I started this thing. You know, I was the one who pitched the idea. They put me, you know, they gave me a job, which was to me a miracle because I was new to, I didn't know anything about the comedy business. And I was relatively new to television. As a matter of fact, I was teamed up with the head of uh, comedy at HBO, a guy named Stu Smiley. First thing he said to me, what do you know about comedy? And he, he didn't say it in a nice way, like, don't worry, I'm going to help you through this. <laughs> it was like, who the hell are you? And, uh, and that was really kind of the attitude of a lot of the, uh, of the professional comedy guys I was working uh, with. And they were right. I did not know anything about comedy. So I had to sort of learn on the job. The, the negative part of it was, as I said, it was my idea. And I felt that if this thing failed, it was really going to be on my head. The positive, Mystery Science Theater shows up. We do a marathon. We get lots of ratings. We get talked about in the press in a positive way. Uh, and that, you know, that started to build. Now, I will mention one other thing that happened. You'll be interested. We got competition six months after we launched. We got competition. MTV launched a competing channel. MTV Networks launched Ha! The Comedy Network. And uh, I didn't count on that. That was one of the big lessons for me as a, as a young entrepreneur. Never underestimate the competition. You think MTV was going to sit around after we launched and let us get the comedy market among their audience, young males? Uh-uh. So they launched didn't have that much. We, we had been spending a lot of time figuring out our channel. They decided to launch when we announced at that press conference. So that was, it was that quick for them. And we went to head-to-head -head for six months before they finally said, okay, we're going to merge the channels. And that was a tremendous disappointment to me that they merged us. But that's how Comedy Central came about.
Wow. Okay. I didn't I didn't know all that backstory. That's that's super interesting. Talk to me about comedy back then and comedy today, right? Because back then, I remember growing up watching Richard Pryor, watching George Carlin, the seven words you can't say on television. And comedy was the place where you could talk about anything and it was okay. And that's what people were there for. People were there to be taken to the extreme. And, you know, it was, it was, a, people had a good time taking things to the extreme. These days, we were in a society where even comics are careful about what they say. And even comics are starting to wonder if you can joke about certain things. And that's to the detriment of, of what the, the relief that comedy provides to society. What's your take on comedy today? Are we going to be able to get through this period of political correctness? Can we go back to where, you know, they're just jokes. Can we go back to where people were having fun talking about whatever they wanted to talk about? I sure hope so. I, you know, I, I'm old enough to have seen things pendulum swing back and forth in uh, in our culture in our society i'm hoping this is a, a pendulum that's going to swing away from us for a, a bunch of reasons i mean you mentioned the fact that comedians are um and have been important to show us a different perspective on 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 society on politics on whatever they care to talk about a perspective we hadn't necessarily thought about and they do it and they wrap it in a nice little comedic package so you're laughing before you realize what, you know, what they're really saying is something important and something you should maybe consider and listen to. And that is a tremendous, a tremendous gift to the American people, I think. Um, the idea that that's going to be cut off and that comedians are going to be kept from doing that is, is just terrible. I've spoken to comedians about it recently, and they are, they are scared. They are, some of them are really, really nervous about it. I will tell you this. Most comedians think about the comedy they do as going up to the line and sometimes stepping over and then putting their foot back. I mean, you know, if they're going to dive in completely and just be insulting and horrible and miserable, that's not much of an act. But they do want to be politically incorrect once in a while. They want to push it once in a while. And that's what they're best at. But now if they put their foot out there and it gets chopped off by society, you know, by people saying you can't say that, that's that's going to be horrible. How much of that is uh, is about what advertisers will put up with? Because if you're if you're an executive and you're talking to advertisers and the advertisers say, look, that guy, I, he's toxic to our brand. We can't if you're going to put him on, we can't advertise on that show. That has to have an influence, right? It certainly has an influence. Ad sales guys um, are typically pretty conservative on that. I mean, what do, you know, as any salesperson wants his product to be easy to sell, <laughs> perfect in every way, you know, jumps off the shelf or whatever and, the, and, and people buy it. But that's not always the case, especially in comedy. Let me give you a couple of examples. When Bill Maher pitched us politically incorrect, and I was there, it was me and another guy, we were in a diner. He said, I want to do a show that I'm calling politically incorrect and I am going to get in trouble. That's my guarantee. I am going to get in trouble. 
and he delivered, let me tell you. But we bought the show. We took that show. We said yes to that show immediately in the diner because we knew that that's part of what comedy is all about, getting in a little bit of trouble. The advertising guy at the time, Larry Divney, let me tell you, the guy was, he, when he walked in, he was a seasoned television advertising sales executive. He had been a star at A&E, which is why we brought him over because HBO didn't have any advertising uh, capability advertising sales capability um he took it he said look i'm gonna be i'll sell this and i'll tell you one more story about larry when south park came in the door do i have to describe south park to everybody well i will describe this south park came in the door as a christmas card that the guys put together because nobody knew who they were and they sent it to all the networks and the christmas card was about jesus christ coming back uh at christmas to discuss the whole thing with the, with the South Park guys. What do you think that was like? I mean, it was the most blasphemous, most profane, more cursing per minute than anything you'd ever seen. It was hysterical. And luckily, a lot of networks wanted it. Lucky, luckily, Comedy Central grabbed it because I think the guys wanted to do it with us. And we showed it to Larry Divney, <laughs> you know the sales guy and he did turn white <laughs> but he said you know something if you put this on the air i will sell it and look the rest is history i mean can you think of a more blasphemous and more profane program on the air ever than that than that show? no that's uh, listen and you guys are geniuses for for grabbing it and for putting it on the air um, talk to me about, uh, and I, I'd be remiss if I if I didn't ask about this because you're you're a, a TV executive, right? Talk to me about redemption. What point do uh, do people who have made mistakes get to come back? So somebody like Louis C.K. Right? At what point w do you think a, somebody like a, an HBO or Comedy Central or somebody will will say okay it's been enough time we can we can bring him back and put him back on the air because it's not I, I i pick on him because he's top of mind he's a you know he's a, a an outstanding comic who's made mistakes and you know i'm just wondering is there a next is there a, a second chance for him and what is the point where a tv executive will take a chance well it's a heck of a good question i you know uh i i think any tv executive considering doing something like that is going to take a lot of things into account. Uh, for example, HBO is not advertiser supported and nor is Showtime. You know, there's a lot of pay television services out there, nor is Netflix for that matter. Um, and uh, they have less to worry about in terms of advertiser blowback uh, and audience blowback because they have been a little more on the cutting edge. That said, you know, it also depends on who the performer is and what his transgressions were, or her transgressions for that matter. Uh, and I think that is really, you know, that comes down to drawing the line. We talked about the line before and going up to the line and crossing the line. Bill Maher got yanked out of HBO because he said something that people didn't like on the air. Uh, I'm sorry, that was ABC. His show, his show was at ABC at that point. And ABC threw him off the air because, and I don't even remember what he said. Something, maybe it was about 9-11. I don't remember. Whatever he said, he offended people. He offended advertisers. It was, what I'll, tell you, I'll tell you exactly what it was. It was he said that there was bravery on the part of the 9-11 hijackers because they knew they were going to die. 
That's, okay. that's so, what he said that got him yanked. I'm laughing only because, okay, let's see if we can make up something to say to the American people that would be completely unforgivable. I was thinking the same thing. What is the worst possible? You know, it used to be the only thing off limits was like Hitler jokes, right? So now. Hitler now, jokes. I mean, you know, Hitler jokes are tame compared to what he did. You know, that that's like, oh my gosh, you know, of all the things to say, right? I will come back to Hitler jokes, but when you say, uh, you know, that is a great example of him getting thrown off ABC, advertisers supported, advertisers saying, get him off the air, and HBO saying, you know what, this guy could be interesting for us. We got a little more room to maneuver. We'll put him on. I think that is going to be the kind of thing that, that may happen. Louis C.K. in particular, I mean, listen, what he did uh, from the point of view of women everywhere is just like completely off the wall crazy um and uh you know you, you start to and i'm not a moralist and i'm not uh, i'm not the right guy to talk about this kind of stuff in that way but there's probably a hierarchy of transgressions you know and uh so you have to place that on the hierarchy of transgressions and decide if you want to go there i mean there have been people kicked out of public life uh, and we know some of some of them for what I consider, you're kidding me, right? I mean, comedians, their job is to get in a little bit of trouble, right. you know? And a lot of them got in a little bit of trouble when they were young. That's a lot different from uh, offending women, attacking women. I mean, you know, Bill Cosby, sure. seriously, please. Yeah. You, can't, you can't do anything with that. Uh, and he's, the poor guy is in jail. I say poor guy because I don't like, it's, it's hard to be in jail, but... He should not be, you know, he should not be forgiven. Um, and, and that's all I can say about it. I will say, just you mentioned Hitler jokes. I got to say this. Mel Brooks, one of my all-time favorite uh, comedy uh, Springtime for Hitler. <laughs> okay, now what year was that? I don't know exactly. It was in the 60s. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> 1967, maybe. Okay, there was blowback. You know, he put that movie out there, and there was blowback. A lot of people said, that's not funny. You can't joke about Hitler. Still, it was brilliant. And uh, it didn't celebrate Hitler as much as make fun of him. And, you know, there you have it. So you go up to the line, you cross the line, you see what happens. They made a, they made a Broadway show out of it 20 years later. Okay, so Comedy Central is going great. You decide you're going to move on. Talk about why, uh, why you moved on and talk about the transition and then going to court TV. Okay. Uh, it's a it's a relatively simple two-word sentence on uh, why I moved on. It goes like this. You're fired. <laughs> okay. And I got fired, uh, as did most of the people I was working with at the time. What happened is, uh, not surprisingly, we had been doing this for about eight years, and they brought in new management. And the new management was brought in to, you know, shake things up. How many times have we seen that in the entertainment business? For me, it was a every shock. Every business, every business, yeah. Every business, every business, yeah. true. But, you know, programmers uh, have a very short shelf life. I, I felt, in retrospect, it was great that I had eight years there. So <laughs> I was just talking to somebody uh, the other day who was fired at the same time, and she is still bitter about it. I mean, I'm, I'm not happy about it, but she was so angry at the time because to a certain extent, and she was right, we didn't deserve it. It's not like we had screwed anything up. It was just, you know, a changeover uh, because they didn't like the person running it 
the president of Comedy Central at the time, and they brought in a new president. And somebody on the board said, oh, you're going to love this person. He's great. He's going to be fabulous. I said, you know what? I'm worried. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, you know, we all got we all got canned. So then how did you get to did you go straight from there to court TV? And how no, did you get to no. court? So what happened in between? Well, you know, luckily, I knew a lot of people in the in the uh, in the entertainment business by then in the television business. And I had friends and my friends were looking out for me. And I got a call from A&E. And they said, you know, uh, Larry Divney, who used to work here, called and said, you just got fired. And do we have anything for you? So why don't you come over and we'll have a talk. And they hired me as a consultant almost immediately, which really kind of saved my life. You know, I mean, I, I don't want to be that dramatic about it. But, you know, there I am. I got a house, a, a wife, a kid uh, and a mortgage. And uh, suddenly I'm not working. And it was the first time I'd ever been fired. That wasn't supposed to happen to me. I was hardworking, I was smart, I was loyal, I was all the things you're supposed to be, and I got fired. I thought people got fired because they screwed up. Yeah. No, Not sometimes true. sometimes there isn't a reason. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes yeah. it just happens. All right, so uh, you're a consultant at A&E, and how does, how does the Core TV opportunity come to you? Well, I, I will say this. I mean, I came out of Comedy Central. I was a more sort of mature executive than when I went into Comedy Central. Uh, as I mentioned, I didn't know much about the business then. So I came out, I did some consulting for A&E, and I also found out consulting's kind of fun. And I also did consulting for Channel 13, WNET, Children's Television Workshop. We worked on a new, a new channel for children. Um, I did uh, consulting for a number of other places and um, learned a lot. I just learned a lot. I was working with top management about how, what they should do next, how they should run their channels. Uh, and it was very instructive. So by the time somebody decided that uh, they wanted to they wanted to give me a job, I knew a lot more. And I actually got, I remember my wife saying, hey, are you ever going to get like a real permanent job? And I said, well, I like what I'm doing. And that week, she said, I think you should get a real job. I got three job offers, two from clients and one from uh, Court TV. And I took the Court TV job, amazingly, because they were the worst off. They were a failing channel. They were flat on their face. They had almost no subscribers. It was going backwards. Their big OJ push was over. They were getting no, they had no audience. They were programming only courtroom television trials. That wasn't doing very well in prime time, as you can imagine. And uh, they fired the guy who started it, Steve Brillo. And they put in new management. And the guy they made uh, president uh, at the time was a guy named Henry Schleif, who I didn't know. And he called me up, and after 20 minutes, after he said, you know what, you seem to know a lot about cable television, uh, so here's the deal. I'm going to hire you. You're going to do everything to make this place great, and I'll do everything else. <laughs> and that's pretty much the way it worked out. And I worked there for eight years. I became president. It was the most fun I've ever had, partly because Henry Schleif was such a great guy. We had so much fun together, putting that channel together, and we became very successful. And then it got bought by, Ted, by Turner. What was your what was the the your big idea or the idea that you're most proud of during that eight year process or during the turnaround? What's the idea at Court TV that you're that you were most proud of? Well, I, I got in there and almost immediately after looking around, I saw what the problem was and I saw what the opportunity was. And once again, when I announced the opportunity, the ad sales guy fainted and fell down on the floor. We had to revive him. Court TV to that point had been an, uh, uh, 
a channel about courtroom, you know, the courtroom system. And I said, we're going to go beyond that. We're going to make this a, a, a network about crime and justice. Okay, and I said the word crime, and that's when the ad sales guy fainted. But we started doing, and this is what I did. We put a, a prime time in there that was all about detectives solving crimes, forensics. We did a show called Forensic Files, and that was widely copied. We did a show called Psychic Detectives, and that that shows up in a, as a dramatic series on, on CBS. I mean... We heard from other networks that they were just watching what we were doing, and, and they did some of that. Um, because we really, I mean, how can you go wrong with those kinds of shows? And they're mysteries. At the heart of every great storytelling is a mystery. So despite the fact that the ad sales guy had a little trouble explaining the word crime to people, it became very successful. And uh, as I said, eight years later, we sold to Turner. We had 80 million subscribers. We had started with 25 million. And uh, we were among the top 10 or 12 highly most highly rated cable channels. So talk about today. Talk about how, how things have, have changed because, you know, everybody with a camera. Look, here's Dave Lorenzo. Everybody with a camera now has a TV channel on YouTube, right? Granted, it's not a real, you know, it's not a, a, a channel like we would think of it. But I look at my kids. My kids are 10 and 12, going to be 13. They spend more time watching stuff on YouTube than than they do watching traditional television, cable television or traditional television. How tough is it for executives today to try and compete with all the other programming that's out there, including the amateur programming, some of which is compelling? I'm not in the television business anymore. I'm, I'm done. I'm writing primarily. So I'm giving my perspective as someone who's been in the television. Right. Industry. That's what that's what we're looking for. When I first started uh, with television, when we first started Comedy Central, you needed a zillion dollars to be in the business. You needed uplink facilities. You needed studio facilities. I mean, there was no other way to get your signal and your television programming out. So you couldn't start it by yourself. By 2005, when digital programming showed up, I, I commented to somebody, you know, a kid could put a TV channel out of his garage at this point, you know, and that... It wasn't being done to any great extent, but I said, man, that's going to be trouble. It's and sometime soon. And that's what happened. Kids started putting television channels out from their garage. And it, it, it was a revolution. Here's the good news. I think it made television better among the people who are producing, let's call it professional television. I mean, you, you look at what's on television today, on Netflix, on HBO, on Amazon, on Showtime, even on the, you know, on the networks who had to catch up to HBO and Showtime early on. It's fantastic. They're bringing in shows from the BBC, which are brilliant because they got great actors and, and, uh, and great scripts, and from all over the world. This is a golden age of television, I believe, on professional television. We are very, very lucky. So we're trapped here in the pandemic, and we're watching television like crazy, and it just keeps coming. That said, there's also TikTok and all those other things that the kids are watching and uh, to some extent the adults are watching. And that's a great source of talent and story and all the other things that, keep, that are going to keep things going. And at the, at the end of the day, it's really about story and character, right? That's, that's what people want to see. They want to see stories and they want to see characters. 
and uh, that that's going to come at at you from all all kinds of different ways going forward. Do you do you think the TV executives today see people who are creating their own content, like uh, celebrities who can create their own content and potentially monetize that content? Do they see that as a as a threat or? I mean, television's always been here. Television's always going to be here. Do they do they just look at that and they go, "Oh, you want to do your little show? Go do your little show." What's what? What do you? Th- how do you think executives see see that? Well, executives, you know, they run the gamut, but most of the executives I know are extraordinarily competitive. You have to be. You're in the audience game, and you get your report card. Wait for it every day. You get your Nielsen ratings every day. They get published every week. At least they were. I don't know what's going on now. Everybody knows how well you're doing. So the, the spirit of competition in television is fierce. Now competition is not only coming at you from television. And even in the old days, we used to say, okay, we're competing against other networks doing the same thing. We're competing against uh, um, network television and cable television and movies and books and all the other stuff. Now... You're competing against all these, you know, all these other forms of entertainment and it's competitive, which means if somebody shows up on TikTok who looks like they're going to be a star, you think, you know, the first guy to get there, offer them a great deal is the winner. And that is what's what happens. People dive on these opportunities. People put a lot of money into developing these opportunities, partly to keep the other guy from developing these opportunities on the odd chance that they're going to be a hit. Yeah. Tell me about writing about yourself. How did, uh, how did, how, how was that? How was that uh, experience? Did you like it? Well, I, you know, I started writing about myself because when I stopped uh, working full time, I said, I want to do some writing. I always did. I was always kind of a writer. And I decided to go to Sarah Lawrence uh, Writing Institute, take a couple of classes on the odd chance that I didn't know everything about writing at that point. <laughs> And guess what? They taught me how to be a writer. And the way I started was with memoir. And I started writing about my childhood and about my experiences in school and and with my parents and siblings and college and everything else. And I wrote probably 150,000 words about my childhood before I wrote anything about Comedy Central. One day I walk in and I got I'm reading something about Comedy Central, something that happened to me. And everybody kind of looked up and said, wow, that's cool. We didn't know you did that. And I said, I just wrote 150,000 words about my childhood. You guys practically slept through it. Suddenly you're fascinated. So I started writing more about Comedy Central, with, not with the intention of doing a book, just saying, okay, I got a lot of great stories from that. And I remembered them, which was, uh, I guess if you're going to be a memoirist, you have to remember. I did no research. Other than dates, I checked dates. I didn't want to get them wrong. But I did not go back and look at tape. I did not go back and talk to a lot of people about what happened and what, what was your experience of it. It's a memoir. It was my, my experience of what was going on and how it affected me. Sure, you got this, the, the story came through, but it's really my perspective. And I was really proud of the way it came out because it's, it's readable um, it's got a through line, it's got a plot, it's got great characters, it's very funny in places, and uh, it's not very funny in places, you know, it's really kind of poignant. So I'm, I'm proud of the way it came out. All right, so we're all going to check it out. The title of the book is Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. 
Uh, it was published uh, just recently, uh, just a few months ago. You can find it wherever books are sold. You can find it on Amazon. There's going to be a link to it in the show notes. Uh, I want you all to go check it out. I'm also going to put a photo of the cover next to you. Know, I'll put Art's photo, of course, in the show notes. We always do. But I'll put a photo of the cover there so you can check it out and link to it. Art, last question. You're talking to you're sitting across from 20 year old Art Bell now, right? You got this you got this memoir. You got this great career. And you're going to give him one piece of advice. What piece of advice do you give to 20-year-old Art Bell? Be bold and take chances. Okay. Be bold and take chances. That is the perfect note to end on. Our guest today was Art Bell. His book is Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central, Lost My Sense of Humor. You can find a link to it on Amazon in the show notes. Go out and pick up a copy. If you enjoyed this interview, I'm sure the book is 10 times as enjoyable because it's going to be longer than the interview was. And there's more in it. There's lots of detail in it. Art, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate you being here. Oh, David, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, that'll do it for this edition of the Inside BS Show. We take you inside business strategy, share all the insider business secrets with you, and help you cut through the inside BS that's holding you back. Join me back here again tomorrow for another edition of our show. Until then, here's hoping you make a great living and live a great life.